What's up, everybody? Welcome to My Black Book Journal, powered by Act Justly Love Mercy. Excited about this episode. It is the last episode of the year. It will wrap up season three and what a season it has been. We have had the privilege to interview some amazing authors. I think it's been our best season yet, even though we've had some fantastic guests and fantastic seasons. But this is the last episode of this year. We'll come back in February 2024. I'm going to take a much needed break, but you can still follow me on my Substack at dannybjr.substack.com. Again, that's dannybjr.substack.com or just go to Substack and put in Act Justly Love Mercy. You can keep up with me there. I'll still be posting weekly with my writing. Y'all, we're going to close this season out with my interview of Ronald Olivier, who wrote the book 27 Summers. My journey to freedom, forgiveness, and redemption during my time in Angola prison. I really enjoyed the interview. I really enjoyed reading about his story. I think that you will also enjoy this interview. And as a special holiday gift for two people who go and rate, subscribe, and review My Black Book Journal on Apple Podcasts, your name will be put into a drawing and have two books to give away. So if you want to qualify for this, go on before December 20th, rate, subscribe, and review And then I would be more than happy to send you a copy of Ronald Olivier's book if you are one of the two names that come out in this drawing. Again, you all, thank you so much for listening. It has been a true privilege to be able to do this podcast with you all. I'm looking forward to all the great guests that we'll have in 2024 and continue to show and share your love. All right. Till then, we out. Enjoy the episode. What's up, everybody? I want you to join me in welcoming Ronald Olivier to my Black Book Journal. He wrote the book 27 Summers, My Journey to Freedom, Forgiveness, and Redemption During My Time in Angola Prison. Mr. Ronald Olivier, how are you doing, sir? Man, great, great, great. Um, very, very honored to be here. We're honored to have you on my Black Book Journal. I'm really, really looking forward to speaking with you. Um, I'm really list- looking forward to our, our listeners having an opportunity to hear from you, learn more about you, your book, so they can pick it up um, and, and get this fantastic read in to learn about a portion of our society and people that a lot of times go ignored or marginalized or put to the side. So thank you, Mr. Olivier, for being here with us. Um, as a guest on my Black Book Journal, we always like to open up with our guests kind of kind of walking us through the arc of their lives. But since you wrote a memoir about your time in Angola prison, um, I want you to share with us why you felt it was important for you to write this book and to share it with the world. Well, um, when when I first got out of prison, I was invited to um, Brooklyn Tabernacle to share my story. And um, that was the first time in my life I ever shared my story. And was very trans was very transparent with it, and I saw the impact that it had on so many other people. Um, just hearing my story and what I had been through, and 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 how it had given so many hope, and so from that I was like, man, maybe I can reach more people with with a book. Um, even when I'm dead and gone, you know, somebody could be reading my story. 
um, hundreds of years later, that book would be there, you know, the law of terror. And so um, <clears throat> I thought it kind of really refreshed my mind because I had started um, writing the book when I was in prison and kind of lost everything that I had written, but always had a desire um, to write a book. And man, it just, it just happened, you know, after, um, after I spoke at Brooklyn Tabernacle for the third time, um, a lot of people, as I was getting off the stage, a lot of people was coming to me, thanking me. I was praying for some, some just wanted to take a picture with me. And there was this lady in the shadows just waiting. Um, and she, she, she walked up to me and she told me, she said, um, I know you're trying to get the pastor's office, but, um, she said, um, I was here the first time that you shared your story. She said, I thought, man, hey, that's a book. And um, she said, but I wasn't in position there. She said, just last week I got promoted as the chief executive editor of Nelson Book Publishing Company. She said, you got to do a book. <laughs> and so she said, wow. I'm talking about this is a complete miracle. And so yeah. she said, um, I'll get with um, Jim Simler's assistant and give my information and um, we'll start from there. And so on my way in the elevator to his office, I get a text from his assistant with all that information. But what she didn't know was the day before when I flew into New York, I was in the office with Jim Simler. And I said, man, I need some help, man. He said, what? I said, man, I got a book in me. I got to get out. He said, man, what? Look, look, I'm, I got a book I'm doing here. He pulled out a manuscript that he was going over. He said, man. I talk about you in this chapter. You can springboard from this and I connect you with my age and blah, blah, blah. And the next day that happens. I'm telling you, nothing, it was completely orchestrated by God, man. My, my whole life has been a series of miracles hmm. right after each other. And so here we are, 27 summers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's 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 wild. I mean, and you 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 talk a lot about in your book uh, that your motto is "Don't tell me what God can't do," that's and right. and like you said, a series of miracles. Uh, let's kind of go back where you start, kind of at the beginning of your story in New Orleans, um, Eighth Ward. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about the circumstances that kind of led you to to ending up in Angola. Um, I mean, just like like you, you kind of you mentioned a lot of young people that came from similar circumstances around that same time. Right. And so um and growing up in New Orleans, um, we 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 moved from the seven ward to the eight ward. Um both neighborhoods was was mild. There was at this time there was certain areas in New Orleans that was very dangerous, like projects, the desire, the all these different projects. And so that's where a lot of um danger was isolated. Um and so um I can remember when we, we moved in the eight wall, I used to sit on my porch and feed the birds. And and there was something dramatic transpired that even stopped the birds from coming out. Um mm. In like the late eighties, um, the crack epidemic came and it and it completely destroyed our neighborhood. And so with that came a lot of violence. And um consequently I, I end up, you know, I was I was a part of a lot of it. Um I believe a, a kid's greatest teacher is not what they hear, it's what they see. 
And so <clears throat> here it is, I'm in the midst of this environment and man, I, I be I became it. Um during the same time, right before this big transition with the the crack epidemic, um my my father, who I was really close with, a real good father, he was always there for me, even though we didn't live in the same home. He I spent weekends with him summers and some um <laughs> And some um holidays and um, um we was very close and so right before that happened, as a transition he makes and he moves to Jacksonville, Florida, and I really felt abandoned by him and, and you know couldn't understand his reasons for leaving, and I turned to the streets. The streets begin to fall to me, and so you have all this chaos going on, and you know um it was very dangerous. You had the it it was it was survival, you know. You had to try to survive. Um, Fourteen, fifteen, sixteen year old, we were we were targets um, to a lot of lot of violence. Um, I, I had went went to a lot of funerals of the friends I grew up with. Um, it was common to see somebody dying in the street, with gunshot wounds, and. I had really thought that was going to be my fate. I had accepted it. You know, this is how it goes. You know, this is a part of life. And um, <clears throat> and and that's the foundation of what led me um, to prison. So as a, as a, really a teenager, you find yourself sentenced to life without parole at Louisiana State Penitentiary, uh, Angola. Um, tell our audience, I mean, what that was like, like for oh. you as a teenager, having to hear that you're going to spend the rest of your life at this notorious prison for violence. Right. And so here it is. Let's back up a little. I got into an altercation with a guy. Um, he sees me a couple of months later and this Christmas day. We get into it. Um, um, it ended up with two people in the, in a pool of blood, uh, one survived and one didn't. Uh, and I was the one who had pulled the trigger. <laughs> so here it is. I, I go to prison for murder and I go to the juvenile facility first. Because mm-hmm. uh, I'm a juvenile. I'm 16 years old. <clears throat> and normally, you know, I've been in trouble with the juvenile B-roll in the system before um, for little things like theft or simple robbery, even a um, like I had a um, assault charge or something like that, um, but a battery charge. Um, and my mother would come sign me out, you know. And so I was looking for that to happen on this murder charge. I'm yeah. thinking mom's gonna come sign me out, but man, she couldn't. She couldn't sign me out, and. Um, eventually I go to, um, juvenile court a couple of times. And then after second or third time, they transferred me, um, into the adults court and, and charged me as an adult. And they, they, um, they charged me with first degree murder, which carried the death penalty. And so I was like, man, you know, everything was really like a, a joke up to to me, you know. Um, I'm thinking I'm gonna get out of this. This, this ain't that serious, you know. Um, and so I was on a tier, um, <clears throat> a dormitory tier with a lot of juveniles who was charged as adults. And 
And man, um, <clears throat> it was just fun and games for us. You know, nothing was very serious. Yeah. And <laughs> until the trial, you know, here it is. I'm on trial, first degree murder, face of death penalty. I'll never forget, it's about 12 a.m., 1, 1 o'clock in the morning, somewhere around there. Um, God takes me from out of the courtroom into a holding tank while the jury deliberates. And that's where everything got real. It was quiet. It was just me. The God had left. And I'm in this cell. And I begin to think, here it is, 12 people about mm-hmm. to make a decision on whether I live or die, and they don't really know anything about me. And I was like, man, I can really die here. I can get the death penalty. And and at that moment, I just heard, man, I believe it was God using my mother's voice. Um, When she told me years, years prior to that, um, look, if you ever in trouble and I can't get you out, man, you make sure you call on Jesus. In that yeah. moment, in that holding tank, I, I, I fell on my knees and I began to cry out to God. I was crying tears and and I I had this one simple request. Um, and it was a deal I made with God. A lot of people say, you don't make deals with God. I made a deal with him. And my prayer was, Lord, um, if you don't let them kill me, I'll serve you the rest of my life. And for the first time in my life, I experienced the peace of God. I didn't know what it was. I just know I felt comfortable. I felt calm. I, there was a sense of um, assurance that I was going to be all right. Mm-hmm. And and so the jury comes back with a, a guilty verdict of the lesser offense, which is the responsive verdict on second-degree murder which carried a mandatory life sentence without benefits of parole or probation. It was translated in layman terms, you die in prison. You never yeah. go home. And so here it is, man, I'm like floored with that because I didn't know that that care. I'm, I'm, I'm completely ignorant to the law. And, and here it is, um, I find myself on the way to, on the river, they call it. You're going on the river, you know, um, and it's in Gola, Louisiana State Penitentiary, which was labeled as, as the most bloodiest prison in the nation, the most violent. And so I'm like, man, so I, I never forget on my ride on that long snake road, about 20 miles to Angola. Um, and I made, I had made a decision within myself that, man, I may not come out of this, I might die. Because I was I was aware of all the stories and how um, the older guys they preyed on the young, you know, and and for us um, raping them and making them their girlfriend. I was like, man, I'm coming in this gate a man. I'm gonna leave out a man, either walking or in the box, hmm. you know. And so um, I went there with that type of chip on my shoulder, but um, amazingly. God was orchestrating this whole thing. He he had a plan. <laughs> and and I just happened to end up around people who was willing to help me and not hurt me. There was guys that that was that that began to mentor me. 
because I had no one to disciple me. You know, um, I knew something was different that happened to me in that cell, but I couldn't really explain it. I didn't know what was going on. Um, and I believe that moment I got born again in that in that cell. And um, the evidence of it was that I was I was still doing some of the same things, still talking the same way, had a real bad mouth with profanity, but it was different this time. I was uncomfortable with it. Mm. I felt bad, <laughs> you know. Yeah. When that was common, you know that I start feeling, and I found out I was being convicted <laughs> by the spirit of God of my <laughs> lifestyle. Yeah, know? yeah. So um, got around some guys who began to disciple me, went to telling me how important it is to update your your mind to what happened in your spirit and how to renew your mind and get in the word and fellowship and go to church. And I started doing those things. And, man, God started really transforming my life, man, from the inside out. And um, it took about two years to even look like I was born again, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so, um, man, it's it's, and, and that helped me to be patient with other people who get born again. Because a baby, um, in a natural baby, when a baby comes out the womb, it look like what it been through, <laughs> right? You know. And so, yeah. it's the same thing in the spirit. You know, I look like what I had been through. You know, there was no evidence that anything had changed mm. until man, um. I begin to fellowship, read his word, spend time with God, and man, really know his voice. And so, um, man, God, I thought it was because I was so bad and, you know, um, that I was willing to die. I had this chip on my shoulder that nobody wouldn't mess with me. But, man, I can look back and, and say, man, with assurance, it's, it's because of God was protecting me. Hmm. And, um, and so um, here I am in Angola. Um, Born again, I'm 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 changing, and so there's a Bible college. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Talk about, speak on it, because you you talk about it in your book. This yeah. Bible college, uh, uh, New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, right? Yes, sir. So they have a yeah, yeah, yeah. They have an extension center there where um professors come from the outside. They lecture you, you know, just like any other college. You know, you go on campus, and you know, um, here it is. I say, man, I'm I'm gonna get in the Bible college. And, man, that was an awesome experience. It gave me so many tools for ministry, you know, and, and how to minister, you know, how to, how to listen. Yeah. You know? mm. yeah. You talk about that, that ministry of presence and being yes. with people, right? Yes. Yeah. And um, that's very important um, of, of letting people get that, get, get what's going on in them out and not coming straight, bringing them straight to the answer and, kind of leading them and let them get to the answer. They call it solution focus, pastoral counseling, you mm. know, and letting them just go and just kind of lead them that way. And man, <clears throat> it was amazing, man. Um, so I began to really um, enjoy life mm. in prison mm. <laughs> because I found a sense of purpose and helping people. And God was using me, and um, man, I I believe that day in that in that cell when I got born again, I received two life sentences, one from mm. the state, but the other one from God. <laughs> <laughs> one one of them didn't have any benefits, the 
The other one <laughs> has so many benefits to that he reminds you in the word, forget not my benefits. There's mm-hmm. so many of them. Don't forget them. And so, man, I, I believe this here. Um, I'm here today because, uh, man, they, they threw down their life sentence and God threw down his and his life sentence, God's life sentence ate up theirs. And I'm free. <laughs> You know, and so and so here I am, man. Um, it was an awesome experience. God did some great things in me. He grew me and and matured me as a man and in leadership. And I just had a great desire, no matter where I was, um, I was gonna help people. You know, and that's became that became my life. That's not something I do. That's that's who I am. And so, um, you, you know, you speak about it um, in the book, how this vision or this, this prophetic uh, word that was typed out and yes. um, about God using um, inmates to take his gospel throughout communities. Um, can you share a little bit with us? That, that, that really seemed from your writing to set you on fire. Yeah for yes. what God could do in you and through other inmates to make his gospel known, not only in the prisons, but also throughout communities where, where you say that where, where it felt like that some of the churches weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. Right. And so here it is, man. I get a hold of this little piece of paper. I can't even remember how I got it, but man, it ended up in my hand and I read it. And I'm talking about it burned like fire in my heart. It was... um. <laughs> A prophecy about a guy named Bill Young. I think I got a hold of it in 1999, but it was dated 1995. And he said, um, he said, man, he was, he said he was asleep and God woke him up. It was real late, about 12 a.m. He said, then it dawned on me. It wasn't late to God because he never sleep. <laughs> he said, but God asked him this, this profound question. He said, God asked him, where do people keep their most prized possessions. Mm-hmm. And he said, man, um, they keep them in a safe, keep them under lock and key, you know. Um, they keep them hidden from, from, from others so, you know, no one can steal it. And he said, God told him, he said, that's where I have my most prized possessions at, in prison. They're hidden. Hmm. And he began in a prophecy, began to show um. <laughs> Um, talk about God showing him inmates. Um, they had a golden glow over him. He said, see, that go my gold. Some had silver. That go my silver. And that go my jewels, my precious jewels. And he said he saw him grow into a giant and begin to step over the prison walls and was going into the communities and, and, and all these churches. And they were taking the jobs of people who weren't really doing the right things in church. Hmm. And um, God, God was placing them in that position, and man, I held on to that man. Um, so in Angola, they have their own radio station. I had got the guy over the radio station to read it. I had they had several churches. I passed it out to them. Man, had them read it in their convers in their congregations, and a lot of people just caught hold of it. And um, man, we was in um. I was a part of an intercession team where we used to pray every Sunday. You know, Sunday night we fast and pray. 
And man, God showed us some great things. We saw people, a lot of, I'm talking about thousands of people just getting out and out of prison, bus loads. So. And, but prior to that, um, during that time when he showed us, man, people didn't leave and go. Hmm. Yeah. You know? <laughs> people died and then go, you went there and go, you stayed there and died. And so it was very seldom through my stay there, you saw people, you know, go home. Every now and then, you know, every blue moon, it was very selective. And so here we see busloads going home. And, and to this day, so many are coming home, have came home. I'm talking about a complete miracle, only God. And they're moving in positions. <laughs> um, I got a lot of friends who I was in it, and um, and gold who work in the courthouse now, hmm, working alongside yeah. DAs, <laughs> you know. And... Um, I end up, um, working as, um, the director of chaplaincy in Mississippi State Penitentiary, mm -hmm. which is mind blowing. It's, 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 it's difficult for, uh, an ex kind to get a job, period, at least on yeah. in the Department of Corrections, you know? And so that was another miracle also. But man, um, God really did some things in me, um. Through my through my state in Angola. So I think for our for our guests or for our audience, you you talk about redemption, right? And that 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 life sentence you received from God, right? Mm -hmm. That that change when you encountered the fact that there was a peace that you had never known before in Jesus, and and it's it's interesting, man, because you know I, I remember being I, I really resonated with your story because I remember being in college, twenty years old. And just wilding out and I was messing around, end up losing my scholarship. And then my girlfriend got pregnant. And so I feel like I'm at rock bottom. And But I encountered the Lord sitting out of my car at 2 a.m. in the morning. And yes. I didn't I didn't really believe I grew up in church. But I told God in that moment, I heard him speak to me. And I said, if if you're real like my mama say you are, if you're real like my daddy say you are, then all right, I, I give up. I, I quit. I surrender. Like, I'll follow you. And I knew it was God because for the first time I felt a peace that I didn't have. I felt joy and I felt a love that I didn't have for myself. So I knew it had to come from somewhere outside of me. And so I really resonated with that story of redemption and God encountering you in the most most painful, that, that lowest moment. Um, speak a little bit to us about the freedom and forgiveness part, right? So what led up to you getting parole? Um, and tell us a little bit about the encounter you had with the young man's mother who um, who you killed. Yes, sir. So I like to say it like this. Um, I was doing the work in the will of God in prison when there's there was absolutely no light at the end of the tunnel. Hmm. You know? Everything said that I was going to die in prison in the natural. But I was committed to him and doing his work. And um, even though there was in the light at the end of the tunnel, there was a light in the tunnel. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what I embraced, the light in the tunnel. And he eventually led me out of the tunnel. But how did he do that? Um, In 2012, the law changes. Um, the United States Supreme Court comes down with a ruling from Miller versus Alabama that said it was unconstitutional to give a juvenile under the age of 18 
a mandatory life sentence. Said it violated our um our um our rights um um eighth amendment of cruel and unusual punishment. And so here it is, um they have to resentence us not. So after they come down with that ruling, that means my sentence is illegal. That they have and, and so it affected um hundreds of us. It was like three hundred or something of, of us in um Louisiana and thousands across the nation. But I believe with all my heart of heart, God did that just for me. Yeah. yeah I hear that. <laughs> they just happened to be a part of it. <laughs> but um and I'm sure some can say the same thing too. <laughs> Amen. But um man, here it is, man. I'm going I have to go back to court now to get resentenced. And so I go back to court and man, I'm like, man, here it is. Man, oh, I can see some light now, you know. Mm-hmm. At the end yeah. of the and I never forget um I was there and there was um a lady sitting on the front row and she just was staring at me at court. And I was like, man, I know that lady. Mm. Know that lady. And so later my lawyers came and said, look, um, man, we got a problem, man. I said, what's going on? He said, man, the victim family showed up, the guy who you killed, sister. And I said, no, that's not his sister. And then he hit me. I said, that's his mother. Um, Out of all the people in the courtroom when I went to trial, man, I can't even remember their faces, not even my mm. lord, you know. But I remembered her face vividly, man. Um, it just burned in my mind. I could see her crying right now on the stand, stand about what I did about taking her son. And um, when I develop a prayer life, um, man, that's who I prayed for the most. Out of anybody in my life, I prayed for the mother of the of the victim. And um, always had a great desire, which was, man, greater than me getting out to one day talk to her and just say, man, could you forgive me? You know, and so here it is. And so I say, I tell my lawyer, I said, man, see if I can talk to her. You know, so he go get with the DA, DA come back. He go talk to her. She said she don't want to talk. She said, man, whatever she going to say, she going to stay on the stand. Like, wow. Okay, I said, we got to keep praying. So um, the, the court date actually gets set back, you know, to the next month, the following month. Then we go, and then they're going to have the hearing. And um, she requested that me and her talk. Mm-hmm. So here it is. I'm handcuffed, and I'm shackled. I'm in this orange jumpsuit. And she comes, the DA comes with her and sit behind me on the bench and I have to turn around and begin to talk to her. When I turn around and talk to her, she 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 was her arms was folded tight like this. And um she was she was real guarded. And I told her, I said, ma'am, and by this time I'm crying. And uh, I said, ma'am, I want you to know I I take full responsibility of the death of your son. And she took a deep breath, and her arms come down, and she leaned toward me. Mm. And I said, ma'am, I said, I have absolutely no 
excuses. Um, I was wrong. I said um, it was a very, very stupid decision that I made. Um, it was senseless. I said all I ask that you find somewhere in your heart to forgive me. And she said, um, she said, she said, man, I don't hate you. And by the, by this time, she's crying too. Yeah. She said, I don't hate you. And she said, and I believe you deserve a second chance. And she told me she forgive me. And mm. man, that feeling, that moment is indescribable. Um, even though I was handcuffed and shackled, it felt like that came off me and I was free. I didn't really care what happened in the trial or um, in the hearing after that, you know. And so here it is, um, me and I talking. This talk probably lasts about 25, 30 minutes, but it seemed like a lifetime. It was the hardest conversation I ever had to have with anyone. And... I remember her telling me, she said, um, she said, I want to bring, I want to bring um his son. She said, what I didn't know when he died that he had a son. She said, I, I raised him. She said, mm-hmm. I wanted to bring him. He with, with me to to um to um to meet you. She said, but um I couldn't. For some reason, she said she she come up with something that happened where he couldn't make it. He said, but he forgive you. I was mm-hmm. like, wow. And I told her, I said, ma'am, I said, man, I said, if I get out, and I love to still meet him. And she said this. She said, not if you get out, when you get out. Yeah. I said, man. So I knew. Man, you can see God handprint all over this. You know, she had to have some type of relationship with God just by her language. And 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 to do that, you know, to look someone in the eye who who killed her son, man, um, and say, I forgive you, man. That's nothing but a God moment there. Another miracle. And man, um, I never forget uh, after she got on the stand and echoed what she told me right there in probably in private, and then um, um, they resentenced me, gave me um parole eligibility. Everybody clapping, and so I had a lot of family support in there. They was clapping, and and so I was the last case. So everybody was leaving the courtroom. I never forget my my niece was like the last one going out the door, and the judge said. Mr. Olivia, you can visit with your family a while. And so I told my niece, look, and she called everybody in. Look, the lady pushed past my family to get to me first. Man. And she said, man, I'm very happy for you. She said, you really deserve a second chance. Because she heard about all the things I was doing. And and how I was helping people, how God hadn't changed my life. She heard everything. She said, man, she said, she told me, she said, just promise me this year. She said, you don't go back there, go back and pick up that, that gun again. I said, ma'am, I promise you. <laughs> you don't have to worry about that. And, oh, um, man, she left. But, man, that was an a awesome experience there. Man. Awesome experience. So- that's, that's so beautiful. Um, so beautiful. Tell us a little bit about the work you're doing now with the Louisiana Parole Project. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, so um, when I when I when I when I went home, I discharged to the Louisiana Parole Project. They help you make a transition from prison to society, and it it helped me a whole lot, and it took a lot of pressure off my family of doing things, you know. And I always advocated for them, and just just April come full circle and being employed by them as a client advocate. Um, amazing. And so um, we help people make a transition and get a, a great second chance. Um, if you come through our program, man, and, and go back to prison, it's just because you just wanted to. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we we have helped since nineteen what? It started in two thousand and fifteen. Since then, we have had over. It's about 400, almost 500 clients. And we have um, less than 1% hmm. um, recidivism rate. You know, So more than likely, if you come through our program, you'll never go back to prison. And so um, it's, it's a blessing just to help guys who come home. You see them, especially guys I know and literally grew up with in prison. They're coming home who had life sentences, a lot of things is happening and we help get them jobs, um, help get them housing, everything they need, you know, um, clothing, food, we're there for them. And, and, and we, and we also mentor them and just help them along the way. And it's a blessing, man, just to serve those guys, man, and help them go through what I went through. Yeah. Well, Mr. Olivier, thank you so much for being a guest on my Black Book Journal. Before we get you out of here, I want to do two things. One, I want you to tell our guests where they can find your book and, and purchase it and maybe even get in contact with you. I know you go out and speak. So if somebody was interested in getting you to come out and speak, how they go about doing that as well? Yes, sir. You can find my book, 27 Summers, on Amazon um, Prime. Um, is there in, in hardback and also um, in audio. Um, if you want to find me, um, Ronald Olivier, I'm on Facebook. We got Ronnie Slim 75 on Instagram. You could DM me there. Um, man, um, I, I pray that, that through my book, man, that so many lives be changed. That's, that's the purpose of it, that God impact people's lives, that they can realize that no matter where they are in their life, they're not too far for God to reach. I mean, he can reach me in Angola, and he can reach you. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that. Yeah. And, and last thing, we always have this little segment on my Black Book Journal called Reading Brings Me Joy, where we ask our guests who have written a book, uh, tell us something they've read recently that has brought them joy. Is there something you read recently that's brought you joy, sir? Um, Really? I haven't been reading anything recently because I've been engulfed with this book and getting mm-hmm. it off and I have a um <laughs> have a three year old <laughs> that don't let me sleep. You know? Yeah. And so um man um that's why I'm focused at on my family. Um, on my family and ministry. And mostly my family, you know, um God restored me, man. I got a wife, got a got a little son and just bought a new home, man. It's just, it's just amazing, man. What he can do, man. Just miracle after miracle. Uh, but yes, um, what I guess, I guess, I guess this is the inspiration here. Um, one of 
one of my own favorite favorite scriptures is um Psalms one twenty six, hmm. um and God gave me that when I was in prison and it's a reality to me right now. It says when God turned again the captivity of Zion, but I put my name that Ronald Olivier, um we were like them that dream, and that's how I feel right now. I feel like I'm dreaming, man. And it, and I, and there's another part that says though I have sold in tears, I reap in joy. You know, hmm. little did I know that my tears in prison were seeds for joy later. Amen. We can mic drop right there, you all. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mr. Olivier, for joining us on my Black Book Journal. You all go out, pick up the book, follow him on Facebook, Instagram. Um, I promise you, you'll enjoy it. Um, you'll, you'll enjoy hearing how God has worked in someone's life in the midst of brokenness, challenges, but he, how God brings beauty, um, even out of those ashes. So, Mr. Olivier, thank you so much. Yes, it has sir. been a pleasure. You all, until next time, we out. Don't tell me what God can't do. <laughs> Don't tell him what God can't do. Hey, y'all heard it. <laughs> Amen. <laughs>